0: Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult. Of Christianity. On today's episode, uh, we are going to be talking about LGBTQIA plus people and how the church culture has really um, done quite a number on um, people. Who are attract? Who are not uh, heterosexual and not cisgender? And it's a really touchy topic. And one of the things I want to say just at the beginning is what this episode's not going to be is a discussion about whether anything is legitimate, whether anything is good for society. All those questions are already answered. People can love who they love, and I'm not interested in engaging that debate even slightly. But what I am interested in is getting into some of the. Um, more nuanced details about how all of this looks, but I can't do that alone, especially as a straight cisgender dude. So I've invited some guests and one of the guests I have on right now is um, Rachel who hosts the Over the Rainbow podcast, a podcast I've listened to a handful of episodes from and really enjoy. Very excited to have her here. Rachel, you want to tell the people more about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you, John. And thank you so much for having me. Um, So I'm Rachel. I use she, her pronouns. I am predominantly a PhD student in the UK, researching LGBTQ plus online hate. Um, And from that, I essentially thought that it was important to expand the reach of my research, essentially. So I thought I'll start a podcast. I'm going to help people on their journey navigating LGBTQ plus activism and education. So I have people on every week talking about different things to do with LGBTQ plus identity and allies and LGBTQ plus people can tune in and learn along with me. So I'm really excited to do this episode and dive into what's actually quite an interesting topic for me, which is sort of religion and LGBTQ plus identity.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you agreed to come on. Uh, I really am looking forward to this. I also knew I would be a little ill-equipped to handle this subject alone, so I brought on what is quickly becoming just the co-host of this podcast, my good friend, Lily. Hey, Lily.
2: Hey, what's up?
0: <laughs> it's always good to have you on. I'm always so happy you're here.
2: Oh, I, I know you are. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really happy to be back again, too, and I'm I'm so pleased to meet Rachel. I'm really excited to learn about your experience
0: yeah absolutely um so the first thing I wanted to do was actually talk a little bit about some of the the history of this quote unquote issue um so in the bible the first instance of the english word homosexuals uh used in a biblical translation was in the r s v new testament um and that was published um in from fourteen uh, nineteen forty six to nineteen seventy um and this uh basically removed most um, fornication and admonition. So whenever uh, the word fornication would come up, it basically just plopped the word homosexual in there. (laughs) Um, And uh, historically, uh, the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate contains um, the stem fornicat with 92 verses representing 16 centuries of Christian tradition on literally the Latin stem fornicat. The position of the Roman Catholic Church with regards to homosexuality developed from the writings of Paul the Apostle and the teachings of the church fathers. These were in stark contrast to their contemporary Greek and Roman attitudes towards same-sex relations, uh, which was rather commonplace. Additionally, many of the councils in the early centuries that established doctrines about sex were more concerned with clergy not engaging in sodomy and was not expanded to laymen until much later though there have been some pro-gay movements within both Protestant and Catholic traditions post-1960s. Most um, have these movements merely recognizing the humanity of folks rather than offering actual meaningful support. So Rachel, the first question I want to pose to you, and Lily, feel free to chime in, is do you personally care about what the Bible says about sexuality at all?
1: So I found this a really interesting question because I like that you asked whether I personally cared because for me one of my major gripes about religion has always been that I almost think you don't get a personal opinion and apologies if I have offended anyone (laughs) by saying that um but in short my answer is no I don't care what the bible says about sexuality and this really is for a couple of reasons um so primarily for me personally I believe that the bible was written by man and as just discussed by yourself translations have just gone through so many iterations from the original text that they've been transformed and lost their original meaning. And if we also think about cultural shifts in attitudes, we cannot apply a cultural lens from thousands of years ago to today. But even if we did, I still think that their argument about homosexuality doesn't really stand. If we think about ancient Greek times, so this is something that I learned within when I did my philosophy degree at university, Homosexual relationships were actually something to be admired or even sought after. It was known as the erastes eromenos relationship, um, where an Erastes was typically an older, educated man who would teach the eromenos, otherwise known as the students, in return for sexual favours. Um, I'm not sure how transactional we can label this partnership, but the point is that homosexual relationships were common and were embedded in the cultures of the time. So we cannot make cultural assumptions or inferences on the basis of a few newer biblical translations, particularly when I know the texts that refer supposedly refer to homosexual homosexual acts now are actually referring to rape or attempted rape, prostitution, pederasty, and the I believe it's the um, St. Paul's letter to the Romans was referring to the Isis cult in Rome. Um, moreover, I just don't think the Bible is a how-to guide for human sexuality. The Bible accepts sexual practices that we condemn and condemns sexual practices that we accept. It is of the time where cultural norms and practices are different. And I think it's quite hypocritical of someone to take what the Bible says on sexuality. That is that man was created for women to have children. And I believe that that's really the only reference to sexuality you can have and exclusively relate and infer this to mean that homosexuality is wrong yet yeah, the bible doesn't actually say anything about many other kinds of relationships that don't lead to ha- that don't lead to having children and we don't condemn those so some examples of those are couples who are unable to have children or couples who are too old to have children couples who choose not to have children and people who are single the bible makes no reference to those so how we have somehow inferred from man was created for woman to have children that homosexuality is wrong I am not really sure I'm Pretty at a loss. So in a roundabout way, I really don't care what the Bible says about sexuality because I don't think it refers to homosexuality at all. And certainly not in the way that some people imply.
0: Wow, that was a packed answer. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things I love about how you did that is um you say you don't care about it. And what's funny is in that, you know, probably three minutes, you said more about the context of biblical times than a lot of Christians know themselves. Uh so good work on that. Um I wanted to kind of continue the conversation in this way. So the first evidence of discrimination to homosexuals um, in the institution of the United States military dates back to March of 1778. Um, Basically, long story short, the lieutenant was brought uh, a lieutenant was brought to trial um, before a court martial. And uh, according to George Washington's report, um, he was tried for attempted um, attempting to commit sodomy and uh, he was drummed out of camp, which was a very shameful um, practice. And all of the original 13 states had anti-sodomy laws, um, usually carrying a penalty of seven years of hard labor. Um, In 1779, President Thomas Jefferson wrote a law in Virginia which established a maximum punishment of castration for men who engaged in sodomy. Um, Over the next 100 years, homosexual men and maybe to a lesser extent, but certainly also to women, um, were labeled mentally defective. And as late as uh, the early 1900s, there was at least one anti-immigration law that would disallow those who were mentally defective from entering the country. Um, And most can connect the dots and see this was rather intentional. And even later in 1948, Congress enacted the first federal sodomy law. That's right, as late as 1948, Congress enacted a sodomy law, which established a penalty of up to 10 years in prison or a fine of up to $1,000 for sodomy. Also included with this sodomy law was a psychopathic offender law and a law to provide treatment of sexual psychopaths in the District of Columbia and for other purposes. In the 1960s, solicitation of same-sex relations were illegal in New York City. And for such reasons, uh, LGBT um, individuals flocked to gay bars and clubs because that was a place of refuge where they could actually express themselves openly and socialize without worry. Um, However, the New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected LGBT individuals, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was disorderly. Now, thanks to activist efforts, um, and by activist efforts, I mean writing, these regulations were overturned in 1966, and LGBT uh, patrons could now be served um, alcohol. But engaging in gay behavior in public, and that includes holding hands, kissing, or even dancing with someone of the same sex, was still illegal. So police harassment of uh, gay bars continued, and many bars still operated without liquor licenses, in part because they were owned by the Mafia. And that's its own rabbit trail that's really fun to go down. Um, But armed with a warrant, there were police officers who entered a club known as Stonewall. And they uh, roughed up patrons and they found bootlegged alcohol. They arrested 13 people, including um, employees and people violating um, the state's gender appropriate (laughs) uh, clothing statute. Um, And female officers would actually take suspected cross-dressing patrons into the bathrooms to check their uh, genitals. And, um, you know, eventually enough was enough. Fed up with constant um, police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and neighborhood residents hung around uh, outside the bar. And rather than disperse, became increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and as um, gay folks were aggressively handled. And at one point, an officer hit a lesbian over the head, and he forced her into the police van, and she shouted to the onlookers to act. That incited the crowd to begin throwing pennies, bottles, cobblestones, and other objects at police. The riots and protests lasted for days, and while it did not completely uh, start gay liberation, it certainly inspired many organizations and clarified that this indeed was uh, no worldview issue. This was a human rights issue those were the famous stonewall riots and we are still fighting today rachel i'm curious because i'm not very familiar honestly how similar or dissimilar is this narrative um, to lgbtqia plus history in the uk
1: um, it's very similar actually our history of decriminalizing homosexuality is also very recent um, how much detail do you want me to go in because i can give you a potted history but i think each of these points are pretty important
0: Please be thorough. I would love to hear it all.
1: Okay, we'll go way back then. (laughs) So I want to note that for starters, whenever I'm referring to any of these laws, they actually refer solely and exclusively to same-sex relationships between two men, whilst female same-sex relationships weren't exactly accepted. They weren't outlawed in quite the same way. Um, So we start with the Buggery Act of 1533, which was passed by Parliament during the reign of Henry VIII. And this is the first time in law that male homosexuality was targeted for persecution in the UK. So it completely outlawed sodomy in Britain, and by extension, what would become the British Empire at the time. And convictions, if you were found to be guilty, were punishable by death. Uh, so it wasn't until 1861 that the Offences Against the Person Act meant that the death penalty was abolished for acts of sodomy. Instead of, they were bit. Instead, sorry, they were made punishable by a minimum of 10 years imprisonment. So we've had some progress, but still not great. However, the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 went a step further, making any male homosexual act illegal, whether or not a witness was present. So that meant that even acts committed in private could be prosecuted. And this was the first time that it became a sort of private life issue where your private life was no longer your private life. So we now fast forward to World War II. Nothing has really changed in the 150 or so years between them. And there was a significant rise in arrests and prosecutions of homosexual men, including Alan Turing, who was the cryptographer whose work played a decisive role in breaking the Enigma Code during the war and leading to us winning the war. Um, and this increase in prosecutions called into question the legal system as a place for dealing with homosexual acts. So in 1957, there was a report commissioned known as the Wolfenden Report, and this was published in response to evidence that homosexuality could not legitimately be regarded as a disease, which is what it had previously been considered to be, and it aimed to bring about change in the current law. However, as with everything, it sits on the shelf for 10 years. So it wasn't until 10 years later that the Sexual Offences Act came into force on 27th of July 1967, decriminalising private sexual activity between men over the age of 21 in England and Wales. So it wasn't until 1967 when it was decriminalised. Scotland only followed in 1980 and Northern Ireland in 1982. And following the Stonewall riots that you mentioned in June 1969, we had the UK Gay Liberation Front, which was founded, and the GLF fought for the rights of LGBTQ plus people, urging them to question mainstream institutions in the UK that had led to their oppression and marginalisation. The GLF protested in solidarity with other marginalised groups and organised the UK's very first Pride March in 1972, which is now an annual event. And in terms of our rights, progress has been made. So 2004 saw the Civil Partnership Act which allowed same-sex couples to legally enter into binding partnerships, which is similar to marriage, but wasn't marriage. Uh, but subsequently, we got the Same-Sex Couples Marriage Act in 2013 that allowed same-sex couples in England and Wales to marry, Scotland fold suit in 2014, and Northern Ireland in 2019, although for them, same-sex marriage wasn't legalised until the 13th of January 2020. Um, it's important to note that we also have the Gender Recognition Act here in the UK, which came into effect on the 4th of April 2005, which gives transgender people full legal recognition of their gender, allowing them to acquire a new birth certificate, although gender options are limited to male and female. So currently we have no protections for non-binary or gender non-conforming people. Although there has been a public consultation on reforming and expanding this act, no action has yet been taken. So we've made some progress in this country over the 500 years of history I've given you, but. As you mentioned with the u s there's still a long way we have to go although i I'm optimistic that progress will continue to be made.
0: I'm glad you're optimistic i I am too um wow, I'm actually kind of struck by how similar those timelines are give or take you know uh less than a decade in a lot of cases um it's It's very interesting to me and i I definitely want to look more into that um you know, when I so I I grew up Christian and I grew up in um, a church that, you know, taught that homosexuality was a sin and they would call, you know, all LGBTQ plus issues homosexuality. Um, and, you know, American evangelical and fundamentalist Christians, um, what they do is they regard homosexual acts as sinful and they think that it should not be accepted by society at large. Um, And they tend to interpret biblical verses on homosexual acts to mean that the heterosexual family was created by God, kind of like you were talking about earlier, to be the bedrock of civilization, and that same-sex relationships um, contradict God's design for marriage and violates his will. And Christians who oppose homosexual relationships sometimes argue that um, same-gender sexual activity is somehow unnatural, but that's obviously a very uneducated um, position. Now, there are certain other Christian denominations that do not view um, monogamous same-sex relationships as sinful or immoral and may bless such unions, you know, and consider them marriages, uh, maybe even have a wedding at their church. However, it's my opinion that most of these more liberal denominations in the U.S. are rather condescending or ingenuine in their approach um, and are merely trying to appease appease certain sects of society rather than advocate for human rights. Um, But that's my own biases um, I want to hear from both uh you, Rachel, and you as well, Lily. Should faith or spirituality be important when it comes to sexual orientation, gender identity, or any other human freedom issue?
1: Yeah, so as I'm thinking about this, um, one thing that actually really hits home for me. So I was brought up in the Catholic Church. I was baptized, christened, confirmed, Catholic. I am no longer in the church, but today, in um Sort of my newsfeed, I was scrolling, and Italy have passed a bill which basically will punish discrimination, and incitement to violence against the LGBTQ plus community, as well as women and people with disabilities. So obviously, this is a massive step forward in Italy. Um, but the Vatican has come out in protest against this bill on homophobia, arguing that it would curb religious religious freedom secured in a treaty. Um, so obviously. The Vatican and the Catholic Church very much thinks sp- faith and spirituality should be important when it comes to sexual orientation, gender identity or other freedom issues. They um, they love to have an opinion on this. Um, but for me, I think that faith and spirituality are two very personal things. I think that the state and the church should be wholly separated for starters. Um, and obviously, I know that if you have a faith or are spiritual in any way, it will be important to all aspects of your life. However, I never think this should be used as a justification to limit behaviours or tell tell others what moral code to live by. Obviously, by that, I don't mean that we should all just live in a completely lawless state. But when it comes to sexuality and gender, which we know is far more expansive than the binaries history taught us, so that being straight or male, female, um, we need the freedom to explore these potentials and to live authentically as ourselves. And I think when Churches such as the Catholic Church are so powerful and so invasive and are curtailing this exploration. I think that that really can only just be bad. I don't think that's a good thing. um And moreover, the Catholic Church, they're obviously cited the right to freedom of religion and freedom of opinion as a reason to justify their views on LGBTQ plus identity. But for me, I think that this works both ways. I think freedom of religion also protects the right not to believe and not to be forced to live according to other people's religious beliefs. Therefore, the general claim that LGBTQ plus rights must be limited because of the religious freedom of those with anti-LGBTQ plus beliefs also represents a direct attack on our negative freedom of religion of LGBTQ plus people, that is, the right to not be oppressed by religious beliefs. I don't know if that made sense, but to me it does in my mind. Like it works both ways. This respects for freedom of opinion. And just as they think they've got the right to justify their views based on religion, I've got a right to reject their views based on religion.
0: Absolutely. I think that makes total sense to me. Uh did you have anything to add, Lily?
2: Yeah, um, that completely makes sense. Um, you absolutely do have the right. Um and I I think that it is so, you know, Is it important to have faith and spirituality when it comes to gender and freedom? I think it depends on how important faith and spirituality is to a particular person. It's very important to some and not particularly important to others. Um, As someone that was raised um, in the Christian church, and I'm not part of the Christian church anymore, I found that spirituality is still very important. Um, but I think that it is really important to question why it is so important to a lot of spiritual groups to limit sexual freedom and um, experimentation freedom. Why is it so important to conform to these ideas that are performed in the, in the Christian church and um, described in the Bible? It seems uh, dreadfully important to protect you know, quote unquote, the sanctity of monogamous straight marriage above anything else. And that really makes me wonder what brings in that importance. Why is it such a threat? Why is it so demonized? Um, so I, I think that when you start asking questions like that, and then you start receiving these really um, kind of disturbing answers for, uh, you know, these assumptions about people that uh, is really just an excuse for not understanding people that are not like oneself. It's it's really important to start wondering why it is that you demonize the people that you do. Um, you know, in the in the Bible, it's shown that it's it's more important to demonize uh, homosexual acts rather than recognize acts of um, rape or pedophilia, and it's. You know, why is it so important to keep those things a secret and to just say, oh, no, actually, uh, the people that perform these things are automatically uh, people that are, um, you know, going after these children when actually it's it has absolutely no connection at all. It's just a very twisted mindset. Um So I think it really depends on how important spirituality is to a person, but it is very important to wonder why it is so important uh, for some spirituality to limit uh, self-exploration and other people.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of framing it, actually, is like, if spirituality or faith is important to it, it probably shouldn't be important to limit it, especially if it's not in your own life, but in someone else's. Um, spirituality should probably be something that gives you freedom, doesn't take it away. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, I really wasn't around uh, too many um, gay people or at least people who, uh, you know, would even be able to describe what being gay meant, especially when I was younger. Um, I do remember when I was a very young kid, like asking my dad, like, what if I married a boy? You know, just as because I was like, had more guy friends and girlfriends. And he, he had a pretty um, intense reaction to it and was like, no, that's never a thing. That's never okay. Um, and so I didn't really question it again since. Uh, it didn't really come up again in my life until, you know, I did start meeting um, some friends through sports and stuff. Uh, I did co-ed softball and some of the gals I knew were bisexual. Um, and I didn't really treat them any different or view them any different. But I was like, well, isn't that sinful? But I was like, well, some of them aren't Christians. So why does it matter? Yada, yada. This is the monologue going on in my head. Well, this thing uh, caught my eye when I was in high school called Westboro Baptist Church. Now, this was a cultural phenomenon, uh, at least in America and probably internationally. Um, Westboro Baptist Church is an American hyper-Calvinist hate group. Um, They're known for engaging in inflammatory, uh, homophobic, and anti-American pickets, as well as hate speech against atheists, Jews, Muslims, transgender people, and numerous other Um, Christian denominations. And uh, contrary to its name, it's not actually a Baptist church. It's not affiliated with any Baptist denomination and has been denounced by um, many different Baptist conventions, including Baptist World of Alliance and even the Southern Baptist Convention, and as well uh, by other mainstream Christian denominations. And the group came into the national spotlight first in 1998 when it was featured on CNN for picketing the funeral of Matthew Shepard, a young man who was beaten to death by two men allegedly because of his uh, homosexuality. And Westboro Baptist Church continued to make news because of their picketing of dead U.S. soldiers, um, which in an age of social media brought traffic to their website, which is hates, I'm not going to say the word, .com. And uh, they are responsible for much of the current perception of white evangelicals, despite uh, many denominations actively condemning the group. And while likely a majority of white evangelicals in the U.S. would say that Westboro Baptist Church are too hateful due to their picketing and filthy language, most white evangelicals have the exact same hateful views as them. In fact, when I was in Bible college uh, for a project I was doing, I read a statement from Westboro Baptist Church website to see if people in my class agreed with their interpretation of a quote-unquote anti-gay passage of scripture. And everyone thought that Westboro Baptist statement was a good statement. And they were shocked when I revealed where the source came from. So kind of getting this idea of um, these extreme hate groups is that more of a threat to LGBTQIA plus folks or is it the subtle bigotry that many people aren't willing to admit?
2: I absolutely 100% believe that it's it's the more subtle insidious bigotry um, because it's a lot harder to identify and treat a problem if it's difficult to admit that there is a problem. Um you know, it's it's really easy to point to um, you know people throwing rocks and say people th- shouldn't throw rocks, but it's a lot harder to point to someone's individual um, faith and their beliefs and say, oh well, that's their own individual faith and beliefs. How who are we to question it?
1: Yeah, I would actually completely agree with you. Um, I loved this question because this is literally what my PhD is on is understanding the impacts of subtle bigotry and microaggressions and the threat that they pose to LGBTQ plus individuals um but before I get into that like the Westboro Baptist Church has been sort of in my field of vision for years they really came into the forefront of sort of the UK's notice if you like in 2009 when they were banned from the country because they were seen as an extremist group like we do not even consider them to be a church we were like nope they're a hate group they're not coming in because they were planning on picketing I can't even remember what now it was like 12 years ago but they were picketing something but it was it was quite a statement on behalf of the UK that they weren't allowed into the country um but like you said I detoured that it is this subtle bigotry that's more of a threat to LGBTQ plus folks um obviously both are harmful in their own ways but if we are talking from a harms approach. It doesn't really matter whether it's an extreme act of violence or an everyday microaggression. They both affect your sense of self, self self-worth, and have equally damaging impacts on your mental health. And this is completely proven by research worldwide. However, subtle bigotry contains the added threat that it is insidious. And as Lily says, you can't always tell it's there. It's very hard to notice. And because of that, it's very hard to challenge. It's very hard to pinpoint. But we see it everywhere it's everywhere in the way people marginalize and exclude lgbtq plus individuals in ways that's not overtly hateful therefore from a legal standpoint cannot be condemned but it undermines lgbtq plus identity and it's something that lgbtq plus folk fear and experience every time they leave their house or go online and it very much feels like the world is against you in that sense not And not only does research show that these microaggressions have a significant impact on a person's mental health, as I said, but these types of subtle acts become embedded in our cultural norms and our everyday language. So it's the ways we hear the words, and I don't know if you have the same phrases, but stuff like that's so gay, or stereotypes about the behaviours of LGBTQ plus individuals that are perpetuated in everyday language. And it just gets to the point where it's so normalized that no one even recognizes the harms it has on lgbtq plus individuals unless you are an lgbtq plus individual and because it's not recognized it almost get le- gets left behind and goes completely unchallenged in day-to-day life and on a legal point as well which for me is just it's just the hardest thing about being lgbtq plus is feeling that people are not going to challenge that subtle bigotry because, oh, it's not, you know, extreme picketing at someone's funeral. It's not a hate group. It's just, oh, it's just something you need to deal with. You know, just laugh it off. Just grow up. You don't have to be worried about that. But when it's someone targeting your identity and undermining it, it isn't something that you can laugh off.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. And... um that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, what both of y'all said, because there's that element of, yeah, if you if you do something that's obvious, like someone picketing a funeral of a soldier, you're like, well, that's clearly wrong. Like we can all be like, don't picket a funeral ever like that always sounds like a terrible thing to do. But yeah, like you're talking about with like the subtle joking or um or even just like the failure to recognize people's humanity. Yeah, over time, that's actually going to do a lot of damage.
2: I was just going to say um, the insidiousness with which uh, people even raise their kids with the expectations of, um, you know, how they present themselves, how they dress, um, how they hold themselves. It's um, it's a lot more insidious to um, manage how a person lives and grows up than it is to um, at someone's funeral, because that is very easy, you know, to, that's a lot easier to point to and say that person needs to be ostracized and not, you know, that's a problem. But, you know, how someone raises their kid, you know, can be seen as so deeply personal and absolutely nothing wrong with wanting these expectations, right? Well, it is it is wrong if it is causing this person such mental um, distress in how they live and if it's causing such mental distress then why shouldn't it be so easy to change well it's not so easy to change because these are these expectations for these very strong reasons right and so that's just an example of why just insidious day-to-day behavior uh is just it's so much more uh Important to look at, uh, in my opinion, um, and then even how you're raised, monitoring. Then it's it's a lot harder to even look at yourself then and kind of break out of those molds and start questioning, really everything that you have been raised to look at as normal, um, and that kind of enters a whole shift in society that uh, scares a lot of people.
0: What a what a great example of um, subtle bitish, uh, bigotry is just in how parents raise their kids. You know evangelicals, I think, are uh, some of the masters of subtle bigotry. Um, One of the ways white evangelicals justify their little subtle bigotry is to say, well, they love the sinner, but they hate the sin. And uh, more practically, this means they categorically distinguish those who engage in a behavior that they don't like as inferior, and it makes them feel superior. That sentence is not um, a loving sentence, Uh, at least that's my opinion, because I don't know, maybe one of y'all can help me out here. Is there such a thing as accepting a person without accepting all of who they are?
1: Not at all for me, and not when it comes to aspects of a person's identity that they can't change and should not have to change. You know, for me, it's a very simple one. It's not like we're trying to reconcile a person you thought you knew with a crime that they have committed. Your sexuality and your gender identity are aspects of your identity We all have asexuality, sexuality we all have a gender and to belittle them in such a way as to refer to them as a sin or to put a caveat on your love for someone in an I love you but kind of way is I mean it's neither Christian nor more generally a loving thing to do it's assuming that your opinions on LGBTQ plus identity are correct and obviously we would argue that referring to it as a sin is wrong in and of itself but if you really are a good Christian you don't put limits on your love for other humans particularly categorizing identity in such a way as to call it a sin and I I don't know I mean it was one of the hardest things for me going through high school and going to the Catholic church and hearing these things and just thinking on the one hand you're preaching love their neighbor as you'd love yourself and love everyone and you don't judge people and Then on the other hand, you're saying all these things and just the um what's the word I'm looking for?
0: Cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah, exactly. Love that. That's going on there. It's just it's just such a pick and mix way of looking at things like, I'm gonna take this rule that the Bible states, but then I'm gonna twist this one to suit my needs and my agenda in this way. And it's like you can't have it in an either-all way. You either take it all or you reject it all and I mean that's one of the things that really caused me to leave the church but no in short not at all you cannot say love the sinner hate the sin
2: I was just gonna say I think it always comes down to a question of what is it that you're asking a person to separate from or um, that they're not acknowledging that is a problem you know is it Is it arrogance? Is it uh, loving someone that you don't agree with? You know what? It what is it that is the personal problem that you're finding, and why is it a personal problem? And whose personal problem is it? You know why is it yours, and how is it yours? So I think that it's it's really a question of what what is something that is problematic to you, and why is it problematic to you? And I think that that's really something that's important for you to examine before you even ask the question, um, you know, what is sinful, is why do you, what is it that you consider sinful, and why do you consider it to be sinful?
0: Yeah, and most often in Christian circles, it seems the answer to that question would be something like, well, it's tradition or it's what my mom and dad told me or something to that effect you know i think there's another side of this though i don't think it's all just uh pure hate i think a lot of it if not almost all of it is a lack of education um i know that i was severely um undereducated when it came to lgbtqia plus issues um until my best friend came out to me as trans and then i began to read books because that's how i work so i began to read books on this topic and this was super enlightening and um when I went through this process of, you know, my best friend who grew up in the same uh, Christian cult that I did um, came out to me and I was, you know, going to Bible college, pursuing um, being a pastor, I still wanted to find out everything I could about this. And and it was so enlightening to read these books. And while I still had many um, problematic views about LGBT plus folks, I was excited that I could like finally speak the same language as my gay friends, this was always like a stumbling block when it came to like my conversations with my friends um, who weren't cisgender and straight. However, you know, as I began to write articles at my school and other things, my peers at Bible college uh, they would challenge the accuracy of source, scientific, and proper terminology I would use just because their default was to react to it. So, um, Rachel, how important is understanding proper terminology when it comes to this topic?
1: First of all, I completely love the educational journey you've been on. I think that that is one of the things that makes people a great ally is realizing the work they need to do and getting out there and reading, absorbing and expanding their knowledge. Um, But as for understanding this proper terminology, it is really, really important. It's part of what helps LGBTQ plus people feel like they belong. And it's a mark of respect for their identity that you use the correct terminology and accept and embrace the existence of lgbtq plus people having said that it's important to note that it's okay to make mistakes as you are learning it can often feel like a minefield or a mountain that needs to be climbed and you don't know how to do it um but you just need to make sure that you don't shy away from this learning process for fear of saying something wrong when you do make a mistake and we all do it even members of the lgbtq plus community you recognize it you apologize you correct yourself and you grow but intention is everything when we're talking about inclusive language. And for me, a willingness to learn and to get it right is all that's re- required. What is not required and is not accepted is going to that default of, oh, well, the Bible says this, or my religious parents or my church said this, therefore I'm not even going to open my mind to the possibility that they might be wrong. That's closed mindedness. And that, not just in relation to LGBTQ plus identity, but the world in general will get you stuck. You're never going to get anywhere if you don't give yourself the opportunity to learn and grow.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Kind of on that same topic, you know, one of the biggest challenges for me, certainly when I was a Christian, and even now some of the stuff I I struggle with and kind of have to catch my own, um, you know, unconscious biases and bigotry, um one of the biggest things that's hard about this is yeah what you were talking about how it feels like a mindful field almost and and it always makes me ask the genuine question and I'm curious to hear your thoughts Rachel and uh Lily if you have anything to add as well can labeling and categorizing these things ever get problematic
2: in my opinion yes uh very much so um it's Unfortunately, a problem that I have seen in the LGBTQ community, there is a lot of gatekeeping and exclusionary um, within the LGBT community. And unfortunately, that probably comes from coming out of a society that is so deeply ingrained into examining and over-examining uh, oneself and the legitimacy of whether or not someone is or isn't something. Um, and so I think that being raised with a tendency to already uh, be so mindful of uh, gate- gatekeeping and being gatekept, kept, um, it's unfortunately a very easy trap uh, for a lot of queer members to fall into. Um, and so unfortunately, uh, labeling can very quickly turn into a contest of whether or not someone uh, belongs in a space or doesn't belong into a space. Um, And unfortunately, that completely takes away the entire point of what the Cougar community is supposed to be there for. It's supposed to be an uplifting, safe community um, and a a sanctuary, really, from society that has been, um, you know, so after... keeping people down into uh, labels and boxes into expectations. Um, It really, you know, isn't about being a place that is just uh, mimicking the same thing. And it's, it's really sad to see when that happens. So I think that um, I think that identifying uh, who you are is, is so exciting. It can, it can be such an exciting journey, but I think it can also be really dangerous to, limit your ideas of who you could be or who other people could be or uh, whether or not they belong or whether or not that, you know, is any of your business or anything that you need to monitor.
1: Literally perfect. And I couldn't agree more. Like I've spoken about this on my own podcast in terms of the advantages and the disadvantages of labels. And there are obviously many fantastic advantages of labels, owning your identity, finding a community using and finding a language to describe yourself is it can be very, very important for many people in their journeys. But labeling can also, like you said, be very problematic, both for the caveats and contingencies on identity and belonging and who's queer enough to belong to the LGBTQ plus community. But also in the sense that labels can be quite restrictive because we use them in a way to categorize people. I mean, as humans, we love language and we love labels because we like to be able to understand people. But if we don't give people the freedom to change their label and to identify with a label, perhaps in slightly different ways than someone else using the same label, or even to not identify with a label at all, then we misunderstand why we use labels. Labels are not the be-all and end-all of identity. They are a useful tool to help you describe your identity, but they are not the whole identity and it's a very personal thing. And as humans, obviously, as I said, we love to categorize people in order to best understand them. But not everything can be reduced to a box and we can move between these boxes. We can straddle two boxes. And when that box or label comes with stereotypes about how people in that box should look and act, as you alluded to, Lily, then we get into a zone in which dangers are, in which labels are dangerous because we're imposing our own beliefs on a person rather than letting them define their identity for themselves totally. I think that honestly, quarantine
2: has been a really exciting time, uh, for people to just kind of, um, be in their own space and be outside of society's, uh, lens and expectations, um, and just explore what it means to be a person in, um, in your own gender and in your own sexuality without, um, having to, um, really analyze how you're going to present yourself uh, when you go out and when you go about your day. And I, I really think that we're going to see a lot of people come out of quarantine and on the other side of uh, society changing, um, coming out as different genders and different sexualities that they went into because they've had that space to just um, not be monitored and to just be themselves. And I think it's it's really, really exciting when people have that space to just um, not have limits of what it means to be a person, what it means to live your life. I think it's, um, you know, life is, is far too beautiful and far too short to limit what it means to explore your humanity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I actually think that for me, one of the biggest things to come out of this pandemic is realizing that. I don't. It's questioning the fact that traditionally speaking, we always thought that exploring your gender and sexuality is something exclusively for LGBTQ plus people. You know, we have to do so much introspection on our sexuality, our gender identity, what that means, what labels we can use, in order to share this with the world and come out. Whether we should come out—that's an entirely different topic. But it's something that I think all humans should be doing even if you're cisgender and you're heterosexual exploring your gender and your sexuality and finding labels that work for you or don't work for you is still something you should be doing it's not an lgbtq plus unique thing and i think the moment we realize that and the moment we give everyone the freedom to explore their gender and sexuality we'll just be creating a more inclusive environment for that exploration and understanding of self
2: yeah, I totally agree. I, you know, I don't think that exploring your humanity is about a, a queer and queer and straight queer and ally us and them situation. It really shouldn't be, you know, learning about yourself and who you are and what it means to exist and how that works for you. Um, it shouldn't be an us and them experience. And I think it's and it's it's going to happen for society, and it's going to be a really exciting time when that happens to just have it be normal to just. Explore what it means to to make you happy and just and just live unharmfully in your own uh, beautiful human life, and it should never be an us and them choice to do that.
0: Can I just have y'all like uh be in my ear every day for like some motivational speaks? That was (laughs) that was that was honestly very beautiful and uh, tenaciously optimistic.
1: We got you. It's cool. (laughs) All All right,
0: sounds good. Um, you know one another stumbling block I guess is like when it comes to this kind of like if i'm i'm trying to you know think about maybe a lot of my listeners i know grew up in church and are maybe have a lot of questions about all of this and um maybe are kind of re- have a trouble like um kind of accepting some of the that you know they were taught their whole lives that a lot of the terminology you know we've been using in this episode is somehow like um off the deep end or it's somehow like, uh, you know, we're, we're so far down the rabbit hole and we're so lost and all this terminology is just one opinion, but it's not fact. And to say it is fact is very condescending. So, uh, Rachel, especially since you spend a lot of time, like, um, studying different, you know, hate online and stuff, you, you might have a good answer to this. Um, How do you inform people or give people resources without coming off as like condescending or like, you know, maybe like you're coming from some sort of place of moral authority?
1: Yeah, honestly, for me, it's all about making that person feel safe and not judged. So that is something that I do in my personal life with my podcast, with my PhD, I try and create a safe and mutual learning environment. So I always say that I'm on the same educational journey as everyone else. So we grow and learn together. You know, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. The only thing I know better than anyone else is my own identity. So if you're sharing a resource with someone or you're teaching them about identity, really make them sure make sure that they know that it's helped or is helping you too. It's a group conversation, you know, a mutual opportunity to learn it's not a chance to put someone down and undermine them for not knowing something or forgetting something wrong. And I really just think that the tone of how you enter that conversation will really convey that and will really give that other person the confidence to know that it's, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to learn and really make it a, a friendly friendlier, more welcoming process for them too.
0: Uh, yeah i think that makes sense i think it's sometimes hard to do when a spe- you, you know can be very triggered by some of the hateful language but i think that is um the only approach that's ever effective it's certainly the approach that was effective on me um i also think like a lack of just it's not just a lack of terms sometimes it's just a lack of general sex education um because that definitely contributes to you know figuring out one sexual identity and understanding fundamental truths about how humans operate um you know, and and I'm I'm actually going to have a guest um, on very soon to talk about purity culture um, specifically. But, you know, with Christian influence on abstinence programs and conversion therapy, you know, the sex ed institution in both um, uh, American and I would assume just general Western culture, um, it's hard to infiltrate. And um, with many kids getting their understanding of sex from porn peers and, you know, other unreliable sources, How can we educate the next generations without, you know, getting lost in the mix?
1: Yeah, this is a really tough one because here in the UK, you're up against some pretty questionable laws. So we, conversion therapy in the UK is still legal. They said two years ago that they were going to make it illegal and decriminalize it. They have not done that. Um, And also talking about same-sex relationships in schools was illegal until recently. So Very recently, we had Section 28, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, people refer to that in um, queer literature in the UK all the time. But Section 28 in 1988 banned local authorities from promoting homosexuality or pretended family relationships, in inverted commas. And so it prohibited councils and local authorities from funding educational materials perceived to promote homosexuality. So this prevented the discussion of LGBTQ plus issues and stopped pupils getting the support they needed. And Section 28 was only repealed in 2003. However, we still have a distinct lack of LGBTQ plus education and sex education in schools. I know I went to a Catholic school, so my journey, you'd think, would be very different, given you know Catholics completely don't agree with LGBTQ plus identity. But in non-secular schools and secular schools just across the country, across the board, despite the fact that Section 28 was repealed in 2003, we have had no same-sex relationships or sex education. So we do need to push for this inclusive education and last year it was finally put into law that you had to include LGBTQ plus relationships and same-sex education into the curriculum. However it is still up to schools how they take that, there is no bar that they need to reach, they could literally mention it in a sentence and that could be that, that is sufficient. So we have a law in place to help, but it's not really helping anything or anyone. So at least from a UK standpoint, we really need to push for this inclusive education. And I know it's going to take a long time, but there are LGBTQ plus organisations already doing the work here in the UK. So there are places like Stonewall and the Proud Trust that have so many online resources for both children and educators on LGBTQ plus identity relationships and sex. And until our educational system actually catches up, it's important that we amplify the work that these organisations are doing because there are people coming through these educational systems who are LGBTQ+, or even who aren't, who need to know about these identities and who need to learn same-sex relationships and about sex education in a safe way, rather than, as you say, from porn or biased or just completely misrepresentative and frankly dangerous sources.
2: Between 14 and 17 U.S. states require sex education to be medically accurate out of 50, which is absolutely bananas and embarrassing. And that's not at all even touching on the issue with not teaching uh, inclusive gender and sexuality education. And there is is uh there's an unbelievable pushback which is i'm sure news to one in the u.s you know considering the inclusive uh, sex education to um younger kids and more inclusive sex education uh, and consent education which it's it's really strange that that's even um question of discussion whether or not consent should be discussed Um, and so it's it's really no surprise that of course pleasure isn't discussed either it's not shocking at all Um, and then when someone falls outside of the uh, expected gender or sexuality spectrum then of course there's a lot of confusion about how to learn uh, about oneself or one's bodies and it, it can often be really damaging and full of a lot of questions uh trying to grow up and figure that out and i think that it would be uh just it's so much easier to eliminate that with more inclusive sex education it would be so much easier to do that
0: absolutely um you know it's funny you brought up the word consent i just said this on a podcast uh one of my podcasts recently but um you know, I didn't even learn the word consent in the context of uh, sexuality till I was 20 years old. Um, and if that doesn't speak to uh, how bad um, it is here in the U.S., I don't know what will. Um, granted, I was homeschooled. So, yeah, more of that fell to my parents. But at the same time, what were they supposed to use? This language that we're using now, um, that's a very important language, has just been lacking. And I, I honestly think a lot of this has um, Christian influence. And, you know, in both Christianity and elsewhere, the biggest problem with all this is this attempt to control who and how people love, um, including loving themselves. And in the evangelical cult, like love is not organic, um, but it's proven through allegiance to the rule of white evangelicalism, um, the way they treat LGBTQIA plus individuals is um, disgusting, disturbing, and unfounded. Uh, their ideas are outdated. Um, their scripture interpretation is ignorant. And um, they're bigots in denial. And I'm tired of white evangelicals and others caring what people do in the bedroom or uh, how they choose to dress or how they what pronouns they use. I'm tired of all of it. Um, the shame around these issues and simultaneously the lack of consequence um, for like actual sexual assault and other problematic practices regarding consent, um, within evangelicalism, it's heartbreaking. And the inconsistency is only explained, um, by their belief that, that love is not unique to individuals in their system. It must fall under their, um, systemic control. And it's, it's a tough subject. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I get really bummed out when I think about it. Um, Rachel, what are, what are some good sources um, or resources if someone is uh, listening and either wants to learn more about these issues or, or needs some support?
1: Yeah, so for someone who's maybe struggling within a church that claims that LGBTQ plus identity is wrong, um, there are fantastic websites and social media accounts for these places. So there's LGBT Catholics, there's Quest, LGBTQIA, Diverse Church, sorry, and House of Rainbow. There are just few places you can go that shows that um, your faith and your spirituality and your LGBTQ plus identity are not mutually exclusive. You can be both. You can still practice your religion if that is what you choose. And you can be LGBTQ plus and it doesn't have to be something that you're ashamed of or that you limit and push down. Um, but more generally, um, for support, local LGBTQ plus centres offer safe spaces, group meetups, and will be able to signpost you to resources as well as providing their own in-house support. And this goes for allies as well. Anyone who's wanting to know more about LGBTQ plus identity are welcome to access these services. In terms of national organisations in the UK, we have Stonewall, The Proud Trust and Mermaids UK, to just name a few. Um, as well as some big ones in the US, such as Glisten, HRC, and PFLAG. And again, you in the US also have local LGBTQ plus centres. If you Google them and then type the name of your city, it will literally pop right up. Um, and then finally, if I'm able to provide a cheeky, po- a cheeky plug even, my own podcast, Over the Rainbow, as well as Instagram account, which is at Over the Rainbow Podcast, contains a huge amount of resources for people exploring their identity, coming out, needing to find LGBTQ Plus Centers, Sexual Health Services, Educational Resources, as well as LGBTQ plus people to follow who just share their inspiring stories. And my DMs are always open. So if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out, please, please do so. I'm always here to have a conversation with anyone.
0: Thank you for all of that information, Rachel. Um yeah, one one more thing I just wanted to kind of say is like you know, I, I'm just thinking of the listener, you know, I, I know my audience fairly well and a lot of uh, y'all grew up in church. And I think one of the most dangerous things y'all can do is uh, if you've made it this far is listen and go, eh, you know, whatever, those gay people, they'll figure it out. Um, that's not going to cut it anymore. Um, and it really should have never cut it to begin with. You know, the the bottom line is you either care about people or you don't. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't and they're in denial about it. Um, and that's not to shame you because I was one of them, uh, (laughs) and not very long ago, a lot of quick change can happen if you just take the time to care. Um, Rachel, this has been absolutely uh, awesome for you to join Lily as well. Thank you for helping me with this. One thing I did want to say is I've listened to a few of Rachel's podcasts. That's over the rainbow podcast. It really is good. Lots of good information in that. Um, And yeah, is there anything else either of y'all wanted to say? I would love for y'all to have the last word.
2: Um, For me personally, the best way that I have educated myself is to really um, follow and listen to uh, my peers and uh, other people's queer experiences. Um, And I do that best by uh, listening to it from them themselves rather than uh, from another source. I don't really trust... uh, uh, bigger companies or bigger media to tell me about it. I really prefer to kind of listen to other people's stories. So I love to find uh, people's podcasts and uh, even stand up media to listen to. Um, some of that's been really important to me is uh, Cameron Esposito's podcast Query. She's had on some incredible guests that I have learned a lot from. And uh, Hannah Gadsby has produced some incredible media that I have learned a lot from uh, Gabby Dunn and Allison Raskin an emotional support lady and uh, just between us uh podcast I've learned a lot from all of that um and um I I really just encourage to um people to just really listen to other people and just follow other people's stories you know it's just it's never an us and them it's just it's a whole society just trying to figure it out just listen to other people it's just the only way you're going to learn
1: yeah I love that and I love queer is a podcast I'm obsessed with Cameron Esposito so glad you mentioned that one <laughs>
2: Yeah, I literally, I remember being like just like 22 sitting in my first cubicle job, just like sobbing, learning about myself. <laughs> it's just such, it's such, it's a really worthwhile follow.
1: A hundred percent. And like when it speaks to you, it's just so, so powerful. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so open and it's really important to keep
1: that same mindset. Yeah. And I think that one of the other powerful things is like having places like this, John, where you are exploring these issues and really tackling what is, to me, one of the most complex and highest challenges for LGBTQ plus people seeking freedom from oppression is the church and religious beliefs. And I don't, like you said, I don't in any way want to blame any one person. It is a systemic problem. It's not something you can pinpoint to any one individual and you can't blame someone who has been brought up in a culture to be taught that LGBTQ plus identity is wrong, but you've had the opportunity, the, I don't know, you've just had the wherewithal to step out of that box and really question your own beliefs and unpack your biases and relearn more about the world. And I think the more we can all do that about everyone's identities, like I said before, the only person you really know about is yourself. So listening to other people's stories and listen To understand, don't listen to respond is one of the greatest things you can do. Give them a chance to talk about their identity and explain who they are and why they are rather than getting your back up and thinking you already know the answer for them. It's just, it's the biggest step that anyone can make on any journey as an ally to anyone.
0: Wow. Thank you all so much. Uh, Again, to reiterate Lily's statement, there is no us and them. And to reiterate Rachel's uh, statement, Listen to understand, not just to respond. Thank you, listener, for tuning in, and I hope y'all have a good day. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life, or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.